welcome to Cube Cuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burroughs. Today, I'm speaking with Liz Rice, the Chief Open Source Officer at Isovalent. Welcome, Liz. Hi, Rich. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited to have you here. I've been kind of a fan of yours for, for quite a while, so it's really great to have you on. I obviously want to talk a lot about Cilium and eBPF and, and all of those things, but first, a little bit about you. So um, can you tell us how you got into computing in the first place? Oh, um, so when I was really small, I, I wanted... Uh, one of those like TV console computer games, like one of my friends had one, and I really wanted that. But instead, my mum got us a ZX80, not a ZX81, a ZX80. It was like, you know, 1K of memory and basic. And I've got to say, I was initially a little bit skeptical that this was going to be as much fun as the TV console <laughs> thing. But actually, it really was. And I pretty much from then, you know... I, why would I want to do anything else for work if I can do computers? <laughs> That's amazing. I had a Timex Sinclair 1000, oh. um, which was a little little thing that had the um, the weird like embedded key kind of pad that you you press down on the thing, and then it uh, loaded and saved things to cassette tape, which was oh awesome. yes, <laughs> yes. So one of my computers. Uh, I had I had a few as a sort of child and then a teenager, and, and yeah. one of them was a Commodore sixty four, and that had a cassette. Well, first of all, I remember having to sort of save up a lot of money to, you know, buy the special <laughs> tape player because you couldn't just use your mum's tape player; you had to have the special one. And then it also it did this thing where it, as I understood it, it had each the data was sort of recorded twice in succession. And oh. it would load for the first one and then it would load the second one. And as it went along, if the second one didn't precisely match the first one, <laughs> no, I'm going to stop now. I'm giving up. And, you know, this would take wow. hours and you get to the end and it would be like, no, oh, something went wrong really near the end. Thank you. <laughs> That's really interesting that it did that kind of a preview towards a lot of our data security practices nowadays. Yeah, I don't think there was much in the way of error correction going on. So, um, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and how did you get into like this cloud native Kubernetes stuff? Okay. So my early career was really in networking protocols. Mm -hmm. Worked on that for quite a long time. And then I had a few years away from that kind of level of technology and working on some consumer things. Like I worked at Skype for a while, worked at Last.fm did some like more product management consultancy in, in kind of hardware and, and things that were really quite different from this. Um, and at some point I was working on a, a, a TV and movie recommendation startup that was kind of ticking over. It was doing okay, but it wasn't really growing. And um, one of my friends, um, Anne Curry, who you may have come across, she had kind of come across this whole containers thing and simultaneously the startup next to ours in this accelerator was kind of going mad about docker and i thought oh something something going on here you know these these two sources are saying these container things should be you know is interesting and i ended up uh you know looking at it thinking oh yeah this is interesting and Anne and myself and and another friend ross uh formed a startup to explore some container scaling 
technology that, mm -hmm. um, you know, we all do like horizontal pod autoscaling now, but we were way ahead of our time. And at the time, people were really happy if they were running one container in a VM. You know, that. Yeah. You know, we were like, Well, yeah, they were just yeah. running stuff, <laughs> running stuff with the Docker daemon, right? Like. Yeah, like no yeah. real management or orchestration or anything. Just I'm going to fire up the Docker daemon and and get this container going. Exactly. And we were trying to persuade them, that, hey, you might want to try and pack a few more containers into that, that giant VM that you're running. And um, yeah, that, that was efficiency was not the problem that people were trying to tackle at that point in time. <laughs> well, I mean, when you think about it, yeah, you know, the stuff that people were doing, you know, it's exactly the analog, right? Like we yeah. were, you'd have a host and it would be a lot of times dedicated to one service and you would run like one instance of that service on the host and that was it. That, and it'd be at like, you know, 3% CPU utilization. You yeah, know? exactly. And, and that's then, how we used to do things. And then Kelsey came along with his amazing Tetris demos showing how, you know, you could pack more workloads into the space or into the resources available. And uh, I think that changed a lot of people's minds. And at it's that amazing point, that I, you, you know, <laughs> sorry. it's amazing that you mentioned that because that was actually my intro to all of this stuff. So, right. um, I mean, I knew about Docker a little bit already and had played with it some, um, but Kelsey did that talk at a small conference here in Portland and I saw it and, and I was just blown away because I had been living in that world where, um, you know, he talks about uh, also about how we were the schedulers, right? Like you had a spreadsheet of like what app was running on what host. And, okay. and, and I was that guy. I was like the scheduler, you know. And so when I saw this, when I saw this idea that you could just basically the, these nodes just became a bunch of compute and memory and, and storage and you didn't have to worry about what was running where. Um, it just blew me away. It was such a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so uh, definitely want to talk um, about eBPF a lot. Um, I wonder if you could maybe start off by giving us like a really, really high level view of, of what it is uh, for folks who might not know. Sure. So the acronym stands for Extended Berkeley Packet Filter. And you can really forget that because it doesn't say anything really about what eBPF actually does today. What eBPF allows us to do is to run custom programs within the kernel and we attach them to events. So whenever that event happens, we can trigger some custom behavior. And it's been used a lot uh, initially, I think, for observability. So every time you hit that event, increment a counter, share that, you know, the, the counter levels with user space and you've got amazing observability data about all these, you know, the, whatever kinds of events you want from across the kernel. But also being used a lot for networking. And the first time I came across eBPF, it was seeing Thomas Graff's talk about Cilium at DockerCon. I thought, oh, that's that's an interesting, <laughs> this, this looks interesting. Yeah, I'll keep an eye on that. But at the time it was, you know, advanced kernel feature that not many people were running and, you know, who knew whether it was going to take off. But over the years, I'd kind of been keeping an eye on it. And uh, and now it's in everybody's kernel, so we can all use it. <laughs> I uh, My intro to it was actually on Twitter through Brendan Gregg. Mm -hmm. So he was 
talking about the flame graphs he was making with it and and all of that. And so my initial kind of context for it was that, right? Was that it's this like observability thing. And so I saw the talk that you did at KubeCon Los Angeles. Um, I think it was a recorded talk, but but yeah. it really it really kind of started to open my eyes to a lot of the other sort of use cases and and things that that eBPF can do. Yeah, it's it's actually been really eye-opening joining iSurveillance. So, I mean, the reason why I joined that company is because that's where all the kind of expertise in eBPF is. And in fact, th there's quite a lot of hand-in-hand -hand development of Cilium and eBPF in the kernel. So there are folks at iSurveillance yeah. who are making that kind of enablement in the kernel to allow these new features to exist. And it certainly was eye-opening for me as somebody who kind of thought, I know a little bit about eBPF, but the range of things that I didn't know and still don't know, you know it's, it's definitely a learning curve because it's essentially, you know, I, I can write a hello world, no problem. Yeah. But you quite quickly get into uh, the point where your eBPF programs are acting on kernel data structures. So that means you kind of have to understand what those data structures are there wow. for and what they've got in them and why they're doing what they do. So uh, that's one of the reasons why eBPF is sort of so, I don't know, intriguing and difficult and exciting all at once. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, I guess that's what I find interesting about, you know, tools like Cilium is that, you know, most of us, I think, are not going to be writing eBPF programs, right? Like, I'm never going to do that in my lifetime. And so having these tools that, you know, allow you to kind of harness the power of it without having to actually write the programs yourself is is pretty fantastic. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I'm someone who likes to kind of see the code, touch the code. I'm not very comfortable just seeing boxes and arrows, but I think you can just do a little bit of eBPF code and sort of quite quickly realize, yeah, okay, now I've got a mental model for how this works and I can use some other tools and I can understand I don't know, how, things like how programs are being loaded into the kernel, how they're communicating with each other, but I don't need to know all the details. I don't need to understand every line of code to have a good mental model for what's happening. So you've actually given a talk, uh, I think several talks, about how to write eBPF programs. And I wondered if you would kind of share a little bit of that process with us. Like, what what is it like to actually write a Hello World? Yeah, so your first challenge is figuring out what language and what library you want to write the code in. And that's quite a... Uh, things are evolving quite quickly in that space. So, for example, when I was first looking at eBPF, really BCC was the choice and you'd write your user space code in Python and uh, your kernel code, the eBPF program itself in C, and BCC would take care of all the compilation for you. At, at the point where you run the Python code, it would compile the eBPF code for you and load it. and that has benefit or had benefits at the time in terms of your compiling on the machine you're going to run on. So you know you've got compatible kernel header files in place. But 
it's quite slow. It requires you to have the whole tool chain on that machine. Maybe not ideal. So since then, there's been quite a lot of improvement. There's, there's, there's been a lot of advance in the kind of portability of eBPF programs. This thing called compile once, run everywhere, which allows you to, well, kind of as the acronym suggests, you can compile <laughs> it on one machine and run it elsewhere. And in order to make that happen, there's some really clever things going on, uh, sort of adjusting the data structure offsets sort of on the fly, sort of in real time as you wow. load the program into the target machine. Um, so things like that have changed the landscape and changed what you can do and how accessible it is to write BPF programs. Um, you can now write in Rust. I'm, you know, I've, I've done a tiny, tiny bit of Rust just to just to poke at it. I'm certainly not a Rust expert, but yeah. the Rust compiler now supports eBPF as a target. So that's quite a nice option for. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And you've done a talk about writing them in Go that I yes, saw. Yes, yes. So when you're writing BPF code in Go, uh, Cilium has a, a an eBPF library uh, and Cilium uses Go as the user space you know, sort of management and coordination side of what we do. Um, and so the, the, that eBPF library is a good option for... Um, loading and, and accessing maps and so on that you'd want to do from user space. And then the, go, the eBPF code itself is written in C in that case. Um, but all these different, there are a few, a couple of different Go libraries. There's um, a couple of different sort of flavors of, of <laughs> BCC now. Well, there are some different languages and there's support for libbpf, which is part of this compile once around everywhere. Um, uh, kind of approach. Yeah, you have choices to make. So that's your first thing you kind of have to identify. Um, and not all, uh, not all of these libraries support all the different attachment points that you might want to attach your BPF programs to, or the different types of events um, and the different program types that you can attach to those events. So it can be a bit of a yeah, take a bit of research or a bit of trial and error to figure out for your, you know, example that you want to do, what is the the uh, the right language? What's the easiest approach? Yeah, I imagine that um, this all is moving very fast, like you said. Um, I will put a link in the show notes to at least like one of your talks about this so that if folks um, are interested in like writing some, some eBPF code, they can uh, get a little bit of a introduction from you. Um, so Cilium, how how would you describe Cilium itself? At some level, I might change my description depending on who I'm talking to, because for many people in the community, so these are these are Kubernetes nerds that yeah. are listening. So, so for, for <laughs> Kubernetes folks, I would say I would start from the position: this is a Kubernetes CNI, Kubernetes networking plugin. It's not exclusively a CNI, so we do have people using Cilium for load balancing in traditional networking environments. So um, depending on who I was talking to, I might, you know, lean towards that. But I think for, for the majority of us, certainly in the, in the cloud native community, it's best known for being a networking plugin. And it was written 
using eBPF from scratch. So it sort of natively uses eBPF. And that allows us to track the different endpoints in a Kubernetes cluster. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're assigned IP addresses, but we also track them with these um, Cilium endpoints. And we are aware of the Kubernetes identities. So in normal, you know, in a, the life cycle of a cluster, pods will appear and disappear and appear and disappear. And the IP addresses get reused for different pods. So IP addresses are not terribly helpful apart from at the sort of immediate moment when you're sending and receiving a packet. But if you come back and look at some network logs later, the IP address could be pretty useless. But because we map them to the Kubernetes pods and services, we have this much richer information about where network traffic is flowing to and from and, and which service is communicating with which other service and so on. So you get this really nice visibility through a tool called Hubble that's part of the Cilium project. Yeah. And so this information is coming right from the kernel. Correct. Yes. Yes. Um, so we're able to hook in. Um, there's a few different places in the network stack where you can hook in. Um, one of them being the socket level. So we know when applications are sending packets into into the top of the network stack. And there's also uh, probably my favorite event type in, in eBPF called XDP, which is Express Data Path. And this is when you're receiving a network packet into, a, into an interface, the earliest possible point you can attach an eBPF program to. Uh, it's before it goes into the networking stack. In some cases, it can actually be offloaded or some network cards support offloading the eBPF code to be processed on the network card. So it oh, never wow. even hits the kernel at all, which I think is amazing. <laughs> that is. I yeah. had no idea about that. Yeah. Um, so what are, what are some of the big use cases for Cilium? We talked about that it's a CNI, but I, I was at the talk that you and Thomas and a couple other folks did it at KubeCon in Valencia. And there was a slide that was like, um, Cilium is a CNI. And it had like 16 different bullet points on it of like all these different things that Cilium can do. And it just, it just blew me away. Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty full on set of capabilities. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> where do I start? It's very good at efficient networking because we can bypass essentially the host networking stack in a lot of cases rather than having to, well, in most pods run in their own network namespace and that means they have their own network stack. So in a traditional non-EBPF environment, a packet has to go all the way through the host network stack through the virtual ethernet connection into the pod and then through the pods networking stack. But with Cilium, because we know, ah, here's this packet, I know the pod that it's destined for, I can just send it straight into that network namespace without having to go through the host network stack, which gives some pretty significant improvements in performance. And for similar reasons, if we, um, we've uh, recently been working on Cilium as a service mesh and 
there's a similar performance gain to be made there because we can just shorten that network path, make it much uh, shorter for a network packet. It doesn't have to go through an enormous number of uh, loops up and down the stack in order to travel yeah. from, from one pod to another or, or to exit the, the, the node. That's super interesting. So, uh, so the CNI is one of the use cases, but there's some other things too, right? So it is an observability tool. Yes, yes. So as well as, you know, sending packets from, from A to B, we can also report the fact that that packet has gone from A to B. Um, that's the Hubble component, which is optional, but highly useful. I think it's one of the features that a lot of users you know, the ability to track down what packets are flowing where. Uh, enforcement of network policy is another important feature. Um, so the policy is loaded as eBPF programs and we can very quickly inspect packets to see whether they're in or out of policy and, and discard them if they're, if they're not. Load balancing. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, we have users using Cilium as a, a load balancer outside of a Kubernetes environment. But it's also, if we think about kubeproxy, kubeproxy is essentially a, a load balancer between or, or sending traffic to two different pods that back a service. And we can do that very efficiently with, with Cilium and, and replacing the kind of IP tables implementation. Um, so again, it's all about efficiency. Integration with legacy networking stacks is also a big part of what people come to us for. So maybe they have a, a highly scaled network, telco use cases being, being a good example, um, and they need perhaps BGP connections, and, and that's something that we can offer as well. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I... You know, I had a chance to talk to Thomas Graff um, at KubeCon at the at the Isovalent booth, and um, I mentioned to him that this this reminded me a lot of Dtrace, you okay. know, in the Solaris world. Just in in that it gave you the ability to sort of plug more directly into the kernel, right, and and get a lot more information about what was going on, and and it was programmable, you know. So uh, so it kind of seemed like a bit of an analog to me. Um, but I think that uh, I remember a lot of us when Dtrace came out were super excited about it, right? Because suddenly you could, there were those bits of information that you could just never figure out how to get when you were troubleshooting a problem. And suddenly you had a way to like kind of just plug directly in and, and pull out a lot of stuff that wouldn't have been observable before. Yeah, I never used Dtrace myself, but um, yeah. I've certainly heard that parallel drawn and, and I... I think it's, I think eBPF is probably giving us a more complete um, uh, programmability, if you like. But uh, I, I think certainly in terms of being able to access, you know, this data directly from the kernel, there's certainly a parallel. Yeah, I think that like that, that troubleshooting kind of use case is is I, I saw a talk from someone I'm, I don't I can't recall her name, but I'll I'll put it in the show notes. Um, that was also at Los Angeles and, and they were talking about an example of like troubleshooting a problem using Cilium. And, and it was like, wow, there's, there's like, um, again, you know, there's, there's all these times in my past where I've like 
been troubleshooting these really, really hairy problems and been really frustrated because I couldn't get like the answer that I needed. And, and I saw this talk and I was like, I wish I would have had this, you know, 15 years ago, it, it would have saved me some pain and maybe I would have gotten a bit more sleep too. Yeah, I think uh, it's often, it's a common reaction that people see the, the visibility that we can give with yeah. Cilium and they kind of go, oh, wow, you know. Um, and we're doing that even more with um, Tetragon, which is a new kind of sub-project in, in Cilium, which gives us this visibility into uh, what's happening in a process level. So being able to see and potentially even enforce policies around things like what files a pod is allowed to access or what system calls or what network connections, the kind of runtime security element of of eBPF, which is um, kind of pushing things forward quite quite a lot. Again, is another example of having that kernel knowledge in the team, being able to kind of leverage that for eBPF tooling, kind of pushing the boundaries of what we can do. So it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that's a great situation to be in, right? When you're kind of working both sides of it, right? When you've got people like helping advance the kernel capabilities and also people developing the software that uses it. Yeah, and, and having that full understanding of what you know those kernel data structures mean. So knowing what the right attachment points are and knowing how to handle the information that you have at those at those events. Yeah. I, I remember when you joined Isovalent. Um, I actually talk to people about this sometimes because one of my heuristics when I like look at startups and think about them is like who's there, right? And especially who is leaving like another company that's actually pretty cool and going to join this place, right? And when when you went there, it definitely got my attention. And then um, a while later, my friend Duffy Cooley joined yeah. as well. Yeah. And and I was like, OK, th there must be something going on here. And and I wonder if, you know, like what it was that that really made you want to go there. Yeah, I, I, I a big part of it was this just incredible depth of knowledge around eBPF, which it was an area that I was really interested in and, and I was keen to focus on. Um, really awesome people. That's, you know. <laughs> got to be the number one thing and like who who are you going to spend eight hours of your day talking with communicating with I, I i love that they are lovely and smart you know that's super important um i i mean you're you're absolutely right that the the folks that you know some of them may be not quite as well known some of them are you know perhaps better known folks from the community um yeah, Bill Mulligan, who joined us from the CNCF, Swana Fodila, who came to us from HashiCorp. There's been some really great folks who've been joining us. I mean, yeah. I feel a bit like I probably missed out some names and I'll feel guilty later, but oh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, there's just some amazing folks you're, on the team. You're speaking off the top of your head. They, <laughs> they can't hold that against you. I, I know Swana. I've I got yeah. a chance to talk with her some at Valencia too. And um, yeah, she just seems super excited about what you all are doing. Um, so I saw 
your two talks there um, at the conference and they were just packed, right? Like <laughs> there was the the talk that you did with Thomas and then there were uh, was someone there from Datadog and someone from Google kind of talking about their use of Cilium, which was really interesting. Um, and then you did a separate talk where you talked about the new service mesh capability in Cilium. I guess it had one already, but there's a, a newer service mesh that uses Envoy that's been recently released. It's in beta now, maybe? Yeah, well, we are at time of recording almost at the point of being able to GA the uh, some <laughs> some features of it. So um, it's been, it went into beta end of 2021. And the idea here is Cilium uses Envoy as a proxy anyway, whenever it needs to terminate at layer seven. Yeah. So, and Envoy is, as many people will be very familiar with, it's used in a lot of service meshes as a network proxy, but it's typically been used in the sidecar model with one instance of Envoy per pod. And we had an instance of Envoy sitting on the node. And I think it was a pretty... Um, natural evolution of thought and actually something that Thomas has been talking about since before I, I joined. I think there's a, a talk from EnvoyCon, I think, from two or three oh, years wow. ago. Um, it, it's, a, it, it, it's not that big a leap to think, well, if we've got this instance of Envoy and we have kernel visibility across all of the network connections on this cluster anyway, could we rationalize what we're doing here move all that layer seven functionality into the single instance of Envoy on the node and save having all this sort of duplicated resources and routing tables and, and the complexity of injection, injecting sidecars. And it turns out that we can so, and, and, you know, get a significantly shorter data path as a result. Yeah, you had a slide in your talk where it was kind of the before and after where it showed this diagram of like all these pods that have this extra sidecar and then suddenly it's the same number of pods, but all the sidecars are gone. And and that, that really had an impact on me because um, I think a lot about, you know, the efficiency of what we're doing um, in terms of the bigger scale of that, right? And what the impacts are like, like those extra pods that are running in those sidecars are, they're taking up power in the end, right? And if you can suddenly, you know, cut the number of, of, of containers you're running in half or something, that's gotta be a big savings. Absolutely. And, and I think that's what's so attractive about it, that every time you inject a sidecar container, I, the first one, that seems like a great elegant model, but at some point <laughs> you kind of look at it and think, there's a lot of these. <laughs> and a lot of them have the same information contained within them, you know, in terms of things like routing tables. So yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of sense to try and rationalize those, I believe. Yeah. I guess we're kind of doing deduplication or yeah. something. It's, and and I, I think it doesn't just apply in service mesh. I think there's, um, you know, other examples where eBPF is being used for things like observability tooling where it just makes sense to instrument the kernel and it automatically has visibility over everything. You, you don't have this issue that, well, if you didn't inject the sidecar, then that pod is invisible to your tool, which is really quite interesting from a security point of view, because if you do have a malicious workload running, 
you know, if I'm an attacker, I'm probably not going to inject a sidecar into my pod that I'm trying to persist on your cluster. But you know, if it's instrumented in the kernel, then I can't, I can't avoid being seen. Well, I can't easily avoid being seen. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a, that's another good point too. And you know, I'm my first job was at an internet provider. I was a system administrator, and I definitely saw some boxes get hacked, and I saw a lot of rootkits. You know, and that's like one of the kind of typical patterns, right? Is that you substitute the binary like the your ls binary right that doesn't show like certain things or your ps binary that ignores the processes you want it to ignore and and yeah it definitely seems like you're going to be better off getting that information directly from the kernel instead of like trusting these other tools yeah i mean there's probably a whole you know arms race to be had of bpf related malware as well but uh you know it, it it's an arms race well <laughs> and i, I think, think that i think it, I think Chris Nova is is, yeah. is doing some things. <laughs> yeah, I haven't watched what she's done yet, but I have seen some some things on Twitter. It looks pretty uh, pretty intriguing. Honestly, it frightens me. Um, <laughs> my reaction when I saw that she was doing that stuff was, um, uh, "Boy, I'm glad I'm not an SRE anymore." <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so. Besides uh, this work um, that you're doing at Isovalent, um, you previously were a member of the Technical Oversight Committee at the CNCF. And I wondered if we could chat about that a little bit, because yeah. I think that's a lot of times those those processes that happen at the CNCF are maybe not uh, the most intuitive to folks. They don't necessarily have a, a ton of, um, I guess, visibility into what's happening. So. Can you like give us a high level overview of like the TOC and what it does? Yeah, so I was on the TOC for three years, which was you know plenty of time to, I guess, hopefully see some changes and um, <laughs> you know hugely privileged to work with some really interesting people and, and learn a lot from some some amazing folks on you know during that time. The TOC really was, as the CNCF was founded, there was this sort of three-arm um, governance model, if you like, of the governing board, the a marketing group, and the TOC, four, four arms if you include the staff as well. But the TOC was really intended to provide this sort of neutral um assessment of projects and whether they were cloud native and and to uh, provide a sort of overview of the direction of you know what does cloud native mean and and how should this evolve and and it, to some extent i think that has um it it's been encapsulated in the definition of cloud native which was one of the things that the TOC wrote arguably you can tell that it was written by a committee <laughs> but uh, but I think that sense of it's, like it's a difficult thing to define though. It is, it's, I mean, it's, it's very not an difficult. easy task. Yeah, I, I, it's one of those things where you know, it's it's a bit like pornography. You know, you know it when you see it. <laughs> right, right. Um. Uh, so one yeah. of the things that TOC does is decide which projects make it into the CNCF, like which become sandbox box projects. I think also like how they 
like go through that maturity model, how they graduate. Is that correct? Mm, yeah, exactly. And the, I, I think as as a TOC member, you're trying to help end users understand the maturity of these different projects. Yeah, that's the that's the goal of this model. You know, we're saying that a graduated project is is de-risked and loads of people are using it in production and and you know, we're not saying it's bug free, but we're saying, you know, this is something that we think you you'll be able to depend on. It's not going to, you know, disappear overnight. It's a, a well-founded project. And then incubation being the sort of step below that. When the CNCF was first created, there were just these two levels. Um, so incubation was it's it's not graduated yet. Yeah. But then um, around about the same time as I joined the TOC, there was this need for somewhere that you could experiment. The idea to be able to collaborate on projects, have a kind of safe, neutral home for it. And, um, and that became the sandbox. There was always a bit of a tension between really great product, uh, projects rather, really great projects and, um, and ideas and that kind of innovation. But you don't want people just joining for the marketing benefit. So at some point we realised, well, perhaps the, the right thing to do here is to withdraw all, you know, make, there are no marketing benefits to being in the sandbox. It's just there to offer that collaboration ground. Um, whether we entirely succeeded in that, I mean, I think the fact that you're a sandbox project <laughs> is is still something that people people like to you know be able to yeah, claim. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a tricky balancing act, I think, of of trying to define whether you think a project is going to go anywhere and be useful, but also having a low bar. You know, we 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 went back and forth on this a, a fair bit during my time on the TOC around like how how easy we wanted it to be to create a sandbox project without wasting the time and resources from the organization but you know while still enabling lots of projects um it's it's always going to be a tricky balance i think and also the sheer work involved in looking at all these projects you have an idea that seems great when there are 10 projects in the world and then suddenly a hundred more projects want to come and get involved, you have to change the processes and you have to change the way you think about it. So we've definitely seen over over time the CNCF and, and the approach to handling projects has has had to had to change. And you know, we're all humans. We've all kind of tried to adapt and probably made some mistakes along the way. But you know, I think everyone has tried to act in, you know, in good faith. And uh, so you know, maybe somewhere along the line, there've been some projects that were disappointed and maybe some of those will have been a mistake, but maybe there were a whole lot of good decisions made as well. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I was thinking about this because the, you know, it's the meme at this point of like Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, you know, pointing at the CNCF landscape. It's like, it's so overwhelming for people. And I was thinking about that position on the TOC that like you're looking at this fire hose of projects coming in and I'm sure that you're seeing a lot more that are actually even represented on that landscape. Yeah, absolutely. And it becomes very difficult to to kind of feel even remotely knowledgeable about all of these different areas. 
And that was one of the reasons why we brought in the, the what are now called TAGs, the technical advisory groups. So we really needed to lean on the community for their expertise. The, the 11 members of the TOC just can't know everything. But then you add in a layer of, um, it, it's it's kind of unavoidable bureaucracy, if you like, that these TAGs are going to meet independently of the TOC, it's, it adds in some extra kind of communication overhead. And it, yeah. it's, it's certainly, it, it was, I think, absolutely the right decision because we've been able to get so many more people involved and um, you know, get more knowledge and experience, both sort of fed into the decision-making process, but also build up in all those individuals who can have a meaningful role in a tag that can serve them well in their careers. Yeah, it actually makes absolutely makes sense to me. You know, you like you said, you can't be an expert at any everything, you know. Um yeah. Uh I'm wondering, so so one thing I've observed in in my career is that people who are in, I guess what I would call consultancy kind of roles, a lot of times get a really interesting perspective on the industry, just in the fact that they get to see what's happening in a lot more different companies than than the normal person would. I, I wonder if there's some of that that goes on with the TOC, like you're, you know, seeing all these different projects. Are there are there any kind of patterns or interesting things that you kind of learned from seeing this sort of big aggregate number of projects? Definitely. I think, in fact, when I was, before I joined the TOC, I was the KubeCon, CloudNativeCon program chair. And, and well, I did that with, with Kelsey and then with um, Janet Kuo. And as part of that, we had to do this project update presentation. And I went from kind of being vaguely aware that there were a whole bunch of other projects <laughs> to... Oh, I'm standing on a stage in front of thousands of people telling them, you know, just giving them this little snippets of news about these projects. Yeah. And I realized that not that many people kind of take the time to, you know, even that quite superficial level of knowledge that I had about them. And and that was one of the reasons why I kind of thought perhaps the TOC is something else that I can get involved with because... I, I wouldn't pretend that my knowledge was deep, but it was certainly broad. And then you spend more time in the TOC seeing more of this breadth, hearing more about what people are using, aren't using, that, that kind of, um, you know, sort of, you're sort of trying to feel from the community what what's working and what people are gravitating towards next. And actually that kind of group of, consultants that you mentioned there there are quite a few of quite a few people that I consider friends who work in that kind of role and are gold mines for that sort of you know just like tell me what you're seeing in this space you know <laughs> yeah yeah i i always find it really fascinating to talk to those people and a lot of because a lot of companies have the same problems you know they really do and and i think that it's it's that way with a lot of things like i've been on um, program committees, you know, for a few different conferences. And, and it's the same sort of thing. Once you start seeing conference submissions in aggregate, you know, you're, you're looking yes. at 500 of them, suddenly the patterns of like what works well and what doesn't, and you know, what's likely to get somebody in become like super obvious to somebody who 
wouldn't, you know, get that um, unless they'd kind of been through that experience. That's so true. And you really see the topics that people are excited about. You know, it's never just one person who's submitting a talk that kind of turns into the next big hype thing. It's because, you know, 10 different people from different organizations have submitted on it. And you think, ah, it's okay. There's something going on here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, that that is definitely one one uh, kind of pro tip I will I will give folks who are interested in doing more speaking is like get yourself on some program committees if you can do that it's it's not always easy especially if you're somebody who's newer to the industry um, but um, but a lot of times even like your local DevOps days will want people to help like review talks or or um, you know there are a lot of other conferences out there but I I personally have found it like super helpful yeah I think it's really helpful in terms of seeing what people are interested in. You can tell the difference between a good submission and a bad submission. Depending on the program committee, you might get to hear what other people felt or, or thought about different submissions. And you can use that to help you craft your own talks and your own proposals going forward. It's, it's a really good idea. Yeah. Um, so to shift gears, I think maybe... Uh, one more time. Um, <laughs> so you just have such a varied background. There's like all these different <laughs> things I want to talk to you about. It's it's really fascinating. Um, you uh, um, are a Go programmer and um, you're somebody that Google has recognized as an expert in Go. And uh, I'm not a Go programmer. I've dabbled at it a bit, but I'm, I'm just curious, like, because there have been a lot of changes, you know, in the last few years with the, the way dependencies are handled and now the generics getting added. And, and I'm just curious kind of what your take is on like where Go is at and and how how you're feeling about that. Mostly feeling a, a pretty high degree of imposter syndrome because there was definitely a period of time where I felt pretty <laughs> plugged in and, and on top of it. And, you know, I kind of knew what was going on. Um, and I would say I'm less clued up than than many. There are people who are, are far more expert than me. But I I think I mean the the generics conversation was so it was so interesting to sort of observe at the kind of meta level of, you know, do we, don't we? And I think the the Go team have always been, you know, one of the strengths of Go is that they've had that really uh strong team of you know it's not really a community project in the sense that cntf projects are community projects they've got this right it's a bunch of google employees yeah exactly and and that's their job is to hold that language sort of together and that i think is why it was so successful from from the (laughs) get-go um (laughs) oh i see what you did there (laughs) That was terrible. Uh, but yeah, but right from the start, they were really, um, they, you know, they had these very strong, strongly held beliefs about the language. And I think that served it very well. And seeing how that kind of community input has been handled and, and how they've learned along the way to to listen to the community and get feedback and, and explore different options without making a commitment. I've I've been party to some really interesting meetings where they've kind of rolled out, here is an idea. How how do you think this would work? You know, what problems can you see? And just by having a large number of people in the room with like different ideas and different approaches, uh, you know, quite often come up with some 
some hesitation about a particular approach and maybe it's back to the drawing board. It's so interesting to see that back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I, I do want to ask you about this. So um, we're recording about a week after KubeCon for those folks who are listening. And just a few days ago, there was an announcement that um, VMware is being acquired. Um, I don't need you to comment on <laughs> that part of it. Um, that's not your job. But but the thing that concerns me about it, I guess, is the fact that there's obviously a lot of people working there who are very involved in the Kubernetes community who are probably pretty concerned about their jobs at this point, right? You know, you've got people there who are, you know, helping to run SIGs and, and all this stuff. And I guess the bigger picture kind of question to me is like, you know, are you concerned about like how this is going to impact Kubernetes itself or, or, you know, how do we keep from being tied so much to like a specific vendor or company? It's a great question. And I think it really speaks to why the CNCF exists. You know, there is no doubt that if VMware or any one of those sort of major companies were to walk away, it would have an impact and it would require a bunch of, you know, figuring out who's going to do what when. Individuals, obviously, you know, they, they may be impacted if, if this happens. I am confident that they will be able to find roles. You know, the, the, I mean, cloud native is such a, um, it, it's, it's a commercial success for so many organizations. There are plenty of companies out there who want cloud native skills. So while I, you know, the people may be in a difficult situation, I, I would hope that that was a short term issue. I think longer term, the CNCF is set up to sort of withstand that kind of existential threat by spreading the, by being that neutral holding ground. You know, that's the main benefit of their foundation is ensuring that all of those large companies can have skin in the game, but without being the sole kind of, the, the, the uh, like that XKCD cartoon with the one Jenga brick that you pull out and everything will collapse. I, I right. don't think VMware is that brick at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, I guess for me, it's like there's a difference in being able to find a job and being able to find a job that will let you do the kind of contributions you were doing before, right? Like those those aren't necessarily the same thing, but but I think you're right in that a lot of those folks are very experienced and have good networks and and are probably going to land pretty well. Yeah, and the the need for those roles and those contributions, I think, is it's quite well understood by individuals in a number of organizations. And maybe, you know, it's going to result in some of those people having to lobby internally for like, actually, yeah, we do need to spend a bit more of our resources yeah. on employing people to do this contributions. But I, I think that there is such a momentum behind the whole community and the whole sort of movement that is cloud native that those, where that, where those conversations have to take place it probably will be successful. That's what I believe. Yeah. What is your view of like how these big vendors kind of cooperate and work together in the Kubernetes project from, 
from my point of view, and I'm very much an outsider, you know, I'm a guy with a microphone, but I'm not super involved in, in the CNCF, but, but generally my take on things has been that, that these big vendors do tend to be really working for the good of the project itself. I think by and large, that's true. There are certainly cases where, you know, we could be a bit cynical about why, you know, in resources have been invested in a certain direction and not in another. <laughs> um, sure. But equally, I have some sympathy that, you know, all these companies have businesses to run and they have to do things, you know, not just out of some kind of altruistic desire to help the community, but they also have to have a business. It may not be a very direct connection between a contribution here and the business success there, but they have to have some kind of sense that they're connected in some way. And I, I would definitely like to see there are occasions where I've certainly seen in the governing board a lot of, yes, we should really do a thing. Great. Okay. So are you going to put some people, you know, give people some time <laughs> to do the thing? Because if you don't, where's it going to come from? Uh, those those discussions do happen from time to time. And, and sometimes they're, you know, that sometimes they fall on deaf ears and sometimes they do actually result in, in changes and, and resources being applied. I, and I think sometimes there is a tendency for big companies to think, oh, I can solve this problem with the application of money. And sometimes it's not just money that's needed, it's actually people and skills. And if it was easy for people to employ people with that money, then, you know, everybody's life would be easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I do want to point out that, of course, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with the VMware thing. You know, um, there there are some not great precedents from, you know, previous acquisitions this company has made. And so I think people do have a legitimate reason to be concerned, but um, we don't know for sure what's going to happen. Um, also, I mentioned on Twitter that, you know, if if you're if you're a listener, you work at VMware, you're putting yourself out there for, for other opportunities. You know, if I can help in any way, please feel free to hit me up if I can connect you to someone at a company that you're interested in or, or anything like that. Um, Liz, I have one sort of a two-part listener question for you from Jamie Howard, and this is a Cillium thing. Um, so the, the question is, with, uh, with Cilium introducing its own service mesh, will the Istio integration be maintained further? So we have uh, an existing Cilium integration with, uh, with Istio as the control plane, which uh, in its sort of current, or the, you know, current form supports the sidecar model. And... The, the advantage of that is really to do with the, the shortening the network path. With the sidecarless model, it will shorten even further. Now, what we're really doing with Cilium Service Mesh is primarily about the data plane. It doesn't necessarily matter to the control plane abstraction how many proxies there are. That, you know, you don't configure an Istio resource that says, you know, please add my Envoy proxy here, here and here. It's implicit in the fact that you're injecting Istio. But 
as a person configuring those Istio CRDs, you, you, you're sort of a step removed from where the proxies are. And with Cilium Service Mesh, we're kind of agnostic to the control plane. So it will really come from what do users want? What do, uh, what do people want to contribute? What do people want to pay for? And, and, and what, what is their preferred control plane for configuring that data plane? So I think to some extent, whether that sidecar model continues to be supported or proves unnecessarily will, will be part of what comes out in the wash as people start to deploy Selenium Service Mesh, as they um, start kind of, well, I mean, as we're working on and, and people across the project are working on integrations with different Service Mesh control planes. So, for example, we've seen quite a lot of people who are, you know, don't have super sophisticated use cases who are perfectly happy with a Kubernetes ingress and they don't need, you know, a whole load of other sort of services to, or service manipulation. Um, and that's by no means, you know, the whole of service mesh solved, but we, we see a mapping between whether it's service mesh interface, gateway API is certainly something that we expect will, will map into Cilium service mesh. Um, Istio control plane, if there is demand for configuring the sidecarless data plane with Istio CRDs, then, you know, implementation will follow. It's really a case of what user requirements are. Oh, so you're saying that would maybe be more like the Envoy model where there's, you know, not, not a sidecar per pod. Exactly. So you could have the sidecar per node, but configured through Istio CRDs with a kind of reconciliation between those CRDs and the Envoy configuration on the node. Okay, well, I guess we'll see. That's, that's Somebody just has to type it in. They just have to type it in and it'll be fine. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it makes sense. And, and I think that um, obviously listening to the community, you know, and what people really want is, is very important when you're, when you're building projects. I think that um, there are enough SEO users out there, I'm guessing, that, that it seems likely that people would want to put the effort in to, to make that happen. Yeah, I, I think that's, I, I mean, it's certainly the initial set of beta testers. And I think, you know, they're, they're, they're self-selecting in some sense, you know, they've, yeah, they've been attracted by, by Cilium. And, and the, but we were actually quite surprised at the amount of enthusiasm there was for implementing SMI and, uh, as the control plane that people are saying that has what we need. And, uh, you know, yeah. so, yeah, we'll, we will be driven by the community. Okay. Uh, well, that's all that I have for you, Liz. Um, I'm super glad that we were able to have this chat. Um, you're a pleasure to, to talk with. Um, is there anything you'd like to mention to folks as we're signing off here? I feel it would be remiss of me not to mention that um, I wrote a little report that's been published by O'Reilly and you can download a copy for free from the ISOVALENT website or well, for the cost of your contact details. And it tells you what eBPF is. So if you're intrigued about eBPF and want to learn a little bit more, then, then go download a copy of that and 
let me know what you think. My understanding is that is that people were lining up to get those signed <laughs> at KubeCon. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It's I love signing books because you get to meet people, <laughs> even if it's just for a couple of minutes. And sometimes they tell you, you know, some really nice little nugget about what they're interested in, and and it's it's just so rewarding really nice yeah i i will definitely put a link to that in the show notes and i'll also link to your twitter your liz rice there um and yeah thanks again for for coming on it's been uh great to chat with you my pleasure thanks for having me cube cuddle is created and hosted by me rich burrows if you enjoyed the podcast please consider telling a friend it helps a lot Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo. You can find her at daybrighton.com. And thanks to Montplacer for our music. You can find more of his work at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening. 